Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Who, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā koutou katoa, everyone. I hope you're all well. I'm Bernard Hickey here from the Kaka Wis. This week's whom? Now, we are hoping that Peter Bale might be able to dial in and join us from New York, New York. But you've got to remember, it's some shocking hour of the morning there, and he may not be able to get himself a connection. So we're just going to jump ahead at uh, five o'clock here and launch pretty much straight into it because we've got a packed show today. We are very lucky to have Robert Patman on again from 5.10 to 5.20. He's going to talk about Chris Hipkins's visit to Papua New Guinea, um, an American defense deal with Papua New Guinea, obviously aimed at China, a warning from Five Eyes this week about China's um, hacking, quite a direct one. And um, also there's plenty of action in and around Ukraine, um, some apparently Ukrainian special forces, whatever you want to call them, um, going over the border into Russia and Belgorod. Then between 5.20 and 5.30, we'll have Nick Goodall uh, from CoreLogic on to talk about this week's big event in the world of our housing market, our economy and our politics. And that was the Reserve Bank's rate hike from 5.25% to 5.5% and their decision to hold there and to say, right, that's it, we've done enough, we won't be hiking anymore. That surprised a few people and we'll talk to Nick Goodall about that and what's happening with house prices. They appear um, to be bottoming out and unlikely to have the deep dive um, some had expected earlier this year. And then on from 5.30 to 5.40, we'll be talking to India Logan Riley, who is a social and welfare activist in Auckland, who, along with a group of other people, has been campaigning against the cuts to social services in Auckland that are planned or proposed by Wayne Brown and the sale of Auckland Airport shares. There's been some developments on that this week. And so we'll talk to India Logan-Riley uh, between 5.30 and 5.40. From 5.40 to 5.50, we'll be speaking to Malcolm McCracken, who you may not have heard of, but if you're a substacker, i.e. a big consumer of substacks, which I definitely am, I produce them too, you'll know that Malcolm McCracken is a New Zealand substacker writing a lot about urban development issues and urban activism, transport. He is an urban planner at MR Cagney. That is the quite big now, a firm based in Auckland um, that gives advice on developing cities and works with councils and others to think about how to build houses and roads and railways and all of the things that go around that. We know there's been some big developments in the world of medium-density residential standards, so-called Townhouse Nation this week, where Christopher Luxon came out and essentially said, oh, we've had enough of that. Now, that was a mistake. This, the, this is the bipartisan agreement between Nicola Willis and Megan Woods to allow people to build 
three three-story townhouses on a regular section without a resource consent. That sparked outrage from the NIMBYs in the leafy suburbs, and that's filtered through into the National Party. And uh, finally, it looks like Christopher Luxon has cracked under the pressure, and um, we'll see what that means. So we'll talk to Malcolm McCracken about that. And if we manage to get Peter on, we'll have a skateboarding dog of sorts as well. And we hope that um, you enjoy today's show, um, which may be a, a one-hander, as they say. And that's uh, that's okay, because we've got lots of um, special guests coming on. And of course, at this point in the podcast, I was planning to celebrate with Peter the immense viral success of our Two Foxes in the Background um, video uh, from last week. For the regular viewers of The Hoon, we had some real excitement when the two foxes turned up in the background of Peter's uh, video shot and uh, kept going in and out for the whole hour, which was hilarious. I um, need to get out more, perhaps, but I thought it was fantastic. Some weird stuff, uh, fun stuff happening on the Hoon, along with all the other good chat around geopolitics and housing and climate and the likes. And, of course, there was other big news this week around the climate with the government's announcement on Sunday at the Glenbrook Steel Mill that it would spend $130 million from the Climate Emergency Response Fund, or in particular the so-called government industrial decarbonisation initiative, the Giddy Fund, which essentially pays companies to reduce their carbon emissions, particularly those who have um, so-called free credits granted to them uh, under the emissions trading scheme because they compete internationally. And uh, Lynn and I went out to Glenbrook on Sunday afternoon for a press conference where Christopher Luxon, Megan Woods and James Shaw spoke along with the CEO of New Zealand Steel and of Blue Scope Steel, the Australian company that owns New Zealand Steel. That turned into quite a big story the next day as people started to think through how come we're spending so much money, giving so much money to an Australian listed company that's very profitable when we can't seem to afford to um, give the money to New Zealanders to reduce emissions or as much money to reduce emissions. And uh, so I wrote about that. Then on Wednesday, I went to Wellington for the Reserve Bank's monetary policy statement and press conference, where I got a chance to ask Adrian Orr and a few others a few questions after we saw the rate hike, 25 basis points, and the forecast that there would be a peak of only 5.5%. And we saw wholesale interest rates drop more than 30 basis points that afternoon and through the next day. And I think... I think that sort of killed off any momentum that was building from the opposition to say that the government's budget was so inflationary that it would push up mortgage rates. Adrian Orr really squashed that. And uh, that is very interesting from an inflation and interest rate point of view. Those who are regular uh, listeners and readers will know I'm a bit of a a dove, uh, uh, someone who uh, is quite firm in the view in the long run that we will have low inflation and that interest rates will go back down again, maybe not to the extreme lows we saw pre-COVID, but uh, a lot of the forces that drove low inflation pre-COVID are still there in my view. Um, so this was a good day for the uh, for team transition, as it, as it were. However, pretty sticky inflation numbers coming through, for example, in the UK in Europe and in, uh, well, not so much in the United States. It looks like the Fed is going to pause in uh, next month 
and uh, then maybe hike once more in July. We'll see. Um, mind you, it's all red- redundant as an issue at the moment because uh, the debt ceiling debate is causing all sorts of grief. And so it sort of doesn't matter what the Fed does. There's going to be a tightening of um, effective monetary policy anyway because the banks in the United States are all freaked out after the failure of a couple of big ones. And, of course, the debt ceiling, you know, we've been here to the brink many times before, and there's a lot of um, people saying, ah, don't worry, they'll fix it at the last minute. They always, you know, it'll be all right on the night. Well, um, the Republicans this time are um, even less organized, competent, and uh, sensible (laughs) than they were in the past. And there's been people saying for quite some time now, six months or so, that this one could go really bad because the Republicans and uh, particularly its speaker and leader in the House, uh, Kevin McCarthy, is weak. Uh, He has a bunch of, um, frankly, nutters uh, saying, let's kill the government. Um, That's our main aim in life is to kill the government, and we can do this through a debt ceiling. Now, of course, if you stop spending money in the US economy uh, from the US government in various ways, paying money to people on social welfare, and also to you know people in the military, all sorts of spending, and then potentially you default on U.S. Treasury bonds. That is um, catastrophic, and has been described as such by the CEO of the world's biggest bank, J.P. Morgan. Well, America's biggest bank, and uh, we've heard the likes of Janet Yellen, former Federal Reserve governor, and also now Treasury Secretary, saying that um, it would be catastrophic if America did default on its debt. Last night, Fitch, um, the ratings agency, essentially put formally put the United States' sovereign credit rating of AA plus on formal negative watch, i.e. that's a formal warning to the US government. Um, you go further down this track and it goes bad, we're going to downgrade you. Now, remember Standard & Poor's did actually downgrade the United States in 2011 when we had a particularly bad one of these um, brinksmanship exercises on the debt ceiling. So the reason this matters, of course, and if you're thinking about it, why should we care about this in New Zealand? Well, the US Treasuries market is the world's most liquid. It is incredibly important in the inner workings of the world's financial system and of the world's banking system because a lot of banks hold US Treasuries as their safe asset. So we're going to keep an eye on that one over the next few days. Could get ugly. All right, Robert Patman, it is fantastic to uh, see you, Professor. Um, Hi, Bernard. It's going to be you and me today um, right. uh, to talk about geopolitics because unfortunately Peter hasn't quite made it on. He's, you know, it's some ungodly hour of the morning. He's in New York at the moment. Wow, he's traveling everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we've, we've had Italy, Perugia, uh, we've had Oslo, and we've had Spain, we've had London, and it was going to be New York. Um, a truly ge- so. This is the Peter Bale World Tour, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we talk about geopolitics, and we mean what we say. We go, we go there. But unfortunately, it's very early in the morning there, and uh, sure. we don't have them on. But that's okay. Um, we're really looking forward to a quick look at what's happened in the rest of the world from a Aotearoa point of view, with yep. in particular Chris Hipkins visiting the. Papua New Guinea. He was incredibly popular there. <laughs> he came out of the plane and he got cheered by everyone. The most amazing garlands of flowers. What do you think he achieved there and, and how important was that meeting? Well, I, I think it was an important meeting. And I, I think in, to some extent, it's added 
to the sense that he's a safe pair of hands when it comes to foreign policy. He acquitted himself in the media stand-up while there, and um, he certainly established an. Imp- he, he had several important meetings, not least with the leader of the PNG, uh, Peter Morab, and also with the leader of the Cook Islands, uh, Mark Brown, and uh, 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 Mr. Modi, the Indian leader, as well mm. as Anthony Blinken. It was a flying visit, but it was fast and furious. And uh, I think from Museum's point of view, it went quite well. Yeah. And there was a big agreement signed uh, there. Anthony Blinken was standing in for Joe Biden, who's still dealing mm. with the debt crisis. Um, he shortened his trip to go to the G7 alone. How important is that security deal between the United States and Papua New Guinea? Yeah, it was interesting because Chris Hipkins was asked whether he, he said that he didn't approve of the militarization of the Pacific Islands region, but he declined to say whether the agreement constituted militarization between the United States and Papua New Guinea. Maybe it's the US Navy just having some R&R in Port Moresby, you know, it's a pretty relaxed, chill place. Yeah, something like that. I mean, I can understand it was a, it was a deft political response in many ways, but uh, I, I don't buy into the argument that New Zealand has to choose, because what was striking about the security agreement between PNG and the United States. Yes, according to all reports, the United States has got you know far-reaching access as a result, both to the airways and the waterways of Papua New Guinea and its territory as a result of this agreement. But Papua New Guinea made it quite clear that that, that didn't preclude that the agreement with the United States didn't preclude agreements with other countries. And secondly, um, it was only part of the package that the PNG negotiated with the US. The US had to provide as part of the package, or it didn't have to, but it agreed to provide 12.4 million US dollars in what was called assistance geared to enhancing the resilience of PNG to climate change. This is going to be a reoccurring theme, I think, for states which want to engage with the Pacific Island states that they do regard, PNG and other Pacific Island states regard uh, climate change as their number one national security concern. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, yeah, I I think that was quite striking because I think it confirms that in the 21st century, the idea that the Pacific is going to be reduced, uh, the Pacific Islands region is going to be reduced to a as a pawn between a big sort of great game between the United States and China. Well, it's quite clear that the Pacific Island states are happy to take advantage of that rivalry, mm-hmm. but they also indicating that they're jealously guarding their sovereignty and they're not going to accept being a pawn in uh, a great power game. So uh, it, it's interesting. And uh, yeah, and I, I also was struck by the fact that Chris Hipkins seemed pretty relaxed in this company and and the fact that um, he seemed to uh, impress Mr. Modi. Mr. Modi immediately tweeted after the meeting that he had an excellent meeting with the New Zealand Prime Minister. And let's be quite clear, New Zealand's had its fair share of frustrations, as have many other countries uh, when dealing with India, particularly in the, in the economic area, because as we all know, uh, New Zealand has been trying for many years to get a free trade agreement with India. um, And also, India has declined to participate in some of the regional multilateral trade deals Mm. that New Zealand is part of. So I I don't think we should necessarily hope for a quick breakthrough on the trade front. But clearly, I I think uh, a dialogue between the two countries is seen as extremely 
hopeful and helpful in Wellington and a good start. Mm. I know um, from his schedule, uh, immediately after flying to PNG, doing the visits, he flew back to Auckland on the Sunday night, Monday morning, went straight into TV interviews, two or three TV interviews. He then did a breakfast meeting with business executives, Mm. then straight into an hour-long live call-in show on News Talk ZB, then did a luncheon speech that was followed by a full news conference with New New Zealand people. So he probably deserved a bit of a rest. He's been very busy and... Mm. um, Wherever he goes, people try to feed him sausage rolls, and apparently he's put on 5K, 5K oh. since he started the job. Well, that's interesting. Uh, what what really impressed me about Chris Hipkins so far is that you can see the benefits of someone who has gradually worked their way up the political pole. That's He's held, he's held high-level positions in the cabinet before he got the prime ministership, and uh, I, I don't think there's any substitute for that sort of experience. In short, he's had quite thorough preparation for the job he's now got. He had high-level positions in education um, and, and other positions in the in, in the government. So it, it seems to me that uh, he certainly has a lot of energy, and that's quite clear. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, he does put a lot of emphasis on hard work. I don't think my my sense is because he makes a great demand, he makes big demands on himself. Uh, that anybody working for him uh, would also have have to have a pretty similar approach. Yeah. Interestingly, um, when he was just the education minister, although I, I actually think Chris Hipkins, Grant Robertson, and Jacinda Ardern were the triumvirate who sort of ran that government. Mm. Uh, and it hasn't changed that much apart from uh, Jacinda Ardern going. Uh, he used to cycle from Upper Hutt into Parliament along that brutal ro- road, if you know it in Wellington, along that um, main uh, road between uh, the Hutt and uh, Wellington. Um, he hasn't done that quite so much recently. Now, the other big event we're all watching and waiting for, and perhaps a bit surprising, some people armed with weapons, we're not quite sure whether they're how connected they are to Ukraine itself, actually went over the border into Belgorod. Mm. Tell us what's going on here. Well, there is some controversy, as you indicated, Bernard, about this. Um, the Russian authorities are insisting they were Ukrainians who made the incursion, or stooges of Ukraine, as they put it. Uh, what we do know is that four battalions of Russian partisans who've been fighting on the Ukrainian side within about, I think, within two months of the war, the inv- Russian invasion these battalions came together. So there was a number of people very unhappy with Mr. Putin who effectively, they were either located in Ukraine or Russian nationality, or they actually crossed the border and fought for the Ukrainians. There seems to be two partisan groups. And I I think it is possible to reconcile both the Ukrainian version of events and the Russian um, uh, version of events because the Russians are claiming they're essentially Ukrainian nationalists doing this. Uh, or they're Russians who are stooges. Well, I think what's happened is that you have got genuine partisan groups who are anti-Putin fighting on the Ukrainian side. Russia has been subject to a whole series. It hasn't got a huge amount of publicity. We've discussed it on the program before. Mysterious fires and explosions Mm. in strategic locations. I don't think Ukraine can just effortlessly do all those sort of things. They clearly have allies within Russia fighting against Putin. But... It's quite clear that this incursion, I think, was orchestrated to some degree by Ukrainian military intelligence. I mean, it does two things. 
I mean, I think it spooked the Putin regime. And it, uh, psychologically, it's a big blow for Putin to see that this group could cross into Belgorod, uh, effectively take it over for a day or so, and then disappear mm. um, and cause quite a lot of damage. That raises questions about whether Putin can defend the country. It's also a psychological move ahead of the looming counteroffensive, which the Russians are already very nervous about, given the infusion of weaponry from the West. Mm. The other second point, I think, is that it stretches the Russian army. The Russians have to relocate to now reinforce Belgorod and other possible targets So uh, of, the, of incursions across the Russian border. So it sends the message that, you know, Russia may have started this argument, but Ukraine is quite intent on making sure that the war doesn't just stay in Ukraine, that it actually affects Russia. Mm. And uh, that's probably a message that Mr. Putin is going to have political problems with in the not-too-distant future in the Kremlin. Just finally, um, back to our um, zone in the world, Five Eyes came out with some very strong mm. comments in detail about uh, what appeared to be a uh, Chinese government-backed attack on US infrastructure, uh, cyber attack, mm. something called Vault Typhoon. They've always got great yeah. names, haven't they? Vault <laughs> Typhoon. Tell us um, why this is important, do you think? Well, partly because of what you just said, Bernard, the strength of the protests and the warnings, they were quite unambiguous. And um, this is a state-sponsored hacking group, it appears to be, called Vault Typhoon. And it seems that all members of the Five Eyes, including New Zealand, signed up to these very strong statements. So these attacks on US infrastructure, I, I think, are seen as a potential precedent for attacks elsewhere affecting Five Eyes countries, not least countries like uh, New Zealand and Australia. I think not so long ago, the former head of GCSB, when he was head of GCSB, Andrew Hampton, said that about uh, most of the state-sponsored cyber attacks on New Zealand, most of them came from China and Russia to authoritarian states. So I, I think we have reason to be concerned if if there is good evidence this vault typhoon group is active in the US to make you know it is it, clearly the possibility that new zealand could be a target as well yes i will put the link to the full statement uh that is you're right included the the logos of all of the five eyes agencies including our own it's a um, a document that is 23 pages long with all <laughs> the detail. They worked, obviously, with Microsoft to uh, identify it. So just the, just the detail and the openness of the accusation for me was, was interesting. Robert, thank you very much for coming on. Lovely to see you. Have a great weekend. Great to see you. Thank you. And we welcome onto the show Nick Goodall, who has been a watcher of the Kaka and uh, and also active in our chat sessions. It's great to see you in in the flesh there, Nick, and uh, with plenty of things to talk about this week. Lovely to see you. Kia ora, Bernard. Thanks for having me. So this week, the Reserve Bank um, increased the official cash rate by 25 basis points, which wasn't too shocking. But then it left its forecast track with a peak of 5.5%. What did you make of that, which on the face of it was not nearly as high as what markets were expecting? 
Yeah, look, I think it surprises anybody. As you say, off the back of last week, the government's budget, uh, the strong net migration, and many of the bank economists coming out saying they saw the peak now pushing up to 5.75 at least, some at that 6% level. So, And I think most of the, the sense around that made sense. So I think we all expected the Reserve Bank to kind of follow suit. You know, I remember some of the wording from the Westpac economists' lines was, you know, better to do it now rather than have to do more damage later on. And that was so similar to the Reserve Bank's commentary in the last year or so, that it seemed to me that they'd probably follow suit with that higher peak. But they, they didn't do that. They left it at five and a half um, and then essentially actually brought forward the falls in OCR as well. Still not till you know middle of next year, I believe. But um, yeah, certainly interesting to see that next move would be downwards rather than up. Uh, and, and of course, because the market didn't expect that, we did see a bit of market reaction as well. Yeah, and for those people who are renewing their fixed mortgages, the Reserve Bank thinks that about 75% have now done that, of rolling over their mortgages onto those higher rates. Those longer-term fixed mortgage rates in particular are quite influenced by what happens on wholesale interest rate markets in New Zealand and also in the rest of the world. And on New Zealand, immediately after the decision, we saw the so-called swaps, which is the sort of wholesale interest rates markets here. They dropped 35 basis points. And um, one of the things that was sort of surprising about what uh, Adrian Orr said in the press conference was that he didn't think this decision would change mortgage rates at all. Um, what's your view on uh, what happens now with mortgage rates for those who are thinking of refixing and and uh, whether or not uh, you know the, the peak is in, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think they're, they're certainly pretty clear uh, with their thinking. They've always been pretty transparent about what's behind their thinking, their forecasts, and they generally have been sticking to their guns lately. So I think we take them for their word. They're not expecting to lift this. They are now playing the wait and see game, which you know a, a few banks have talked about. The Reserve Bank should have done that a couple of decisions ago. But they've got to the peak they expected when they picked this peak a while ago. Um, and I now expect them to absolutely wait and see how this plays out. As you say, most Probably mortgage holders have moved on to sl on higher rates. There's still some to go, so there still will be some pain to go for some mortgage holders. But I suppose the important thing now is that generally most people will be able to um, quantify the worst case scenario. And so they know where their rates should be when they do roll off in the next wee while. And so they can figure out what their payments would be and have some confidence that it's not going to get any worse from that point. Um, I actually was discussing with one of the big banks this week, their expectations and their changes. And you know, all the banks have sort of spun up these teams of people to support their customers as they go through these fixed rate rollovers. And one of the banks I spoke to said that they'd actually, you know, been able to scale back that team because they haven't had to have as many people talking mm. to those customers because they are well prepared. And, you know, for many um, customers, when they were going down in the interest rates, you know, from the sixes to the two and a half or whatever, they were, or fours or whatever it would have been, they were actually staying at those higher rates, staying as if they were paying those higher rates. And so they're actually ahead on repayments. Mm. And the New Zealand Bankers Association um, came out a wee while ago now, but did say in the second half of last year that um, you know 45% odd people were ahead on their repayments. And so mm. it's not to say there's not going to be some people struggling out there. There will be. But for the large majority of people, they're managing to reduce their spending elsewhere and and put the money towards the mortgage where required. So yeah, it certainly means that you know, we're not, we're not going to see probably the same problems and, and any greater increase in those fixed interest rates anyway. Floating rates have gone up, fixed interest rates not so much. 
So all of this plays into what's happening in the housing market where there isn't a lot of sales action at the moment. You can sense that people are, a lot of waiting, you know, why put your house onto the market and sell it for um, a price significantly below uh, what you think it's valued at and um, maybe just wait around and hope something changes in the meantime. Um, and then the banks, you know, they've got businesses to run, um, profits to make and uh, market share to try to win. Uh um, what's your sense of what's happening out there in the in the housing market at the moment? You know, there's various comments that uh, you know we're we're hitting the bottom and it's a there's a bounce back coming on. Uh, and we saw the Reserve Bank, for example, lift its forecast track for house prices. Um, not quite a, a much shallower uh, recession in, in housing prices. What's your view of what you're seeing in the market at the moment? Yeah, look, there's no doubt that there's been a significant reduction in demand over the last six or so months, especially. And we do expect some demand to come back off, off the news of there to be no increase or further increases to the OCR. The fact that we've got the LVRs now confirmed as loosening on the 1st of June, allowing more low deposit lending to occur in the market. These will bring a, a trickle back, I think, of some buyers, which will increase demand to a degree. But I don't think we're expecting to see a significant flood of people come to market there's a real constraint here which is affordability you know and when you look at measures like the proportion of income required to purchase a property right now um, at an 80 percent lvr for most people they'll need that um, it's, it's still sitting over 50 percent and unless interest rates fall that's not going to improve especially if um, value of, pro of properties plateau now so that'll still keep a consistent constraint on the market and for investors we know they're already doing it tough regulation has increased they still can't and deduct their interest costs, of course, and their tax returns. And that really is limiting the amount of demand out there. So when we do get to the bottom, whenever that is, and it's looking sooner and sooner by the day, uh, we don't expect the market to suddenly take off again, simply because there are those constraints on the market. So yep, demand will come back, sales will come back, values will probably lift at some stage off the back of that. But we don't think we're ready for that, that cycle to just take off again like we've seen in the past. Mm, uh, although the Reserve Bank is going to add a little bit of juice into the equation uh, from during the first confirmation today that they're going to go ahead and loosen the LVRs, yep. uh, increase the uh, share of high LVR lending for owner-occupiers from 10% to 15% and lifting the threshold for deeming rental property investment as high LVR from 60% to 65%. Yes. Um, how much of a you know impetus might that give the market from June the 1st? We don't think too much, like a little bit of a tweak. Um, I think that the tough thing, right, is that if you can now get, uh, if, you, if you didn't need your 20% deposit before, and now a few people don't need that, those people then have to take on more debt. So if you're only going in with a 10 or a 15% deposit, you then need 85 or 90% debt. And you need to service that debt at today's interest rates. And you have to um, you know, pass the testing service rates, which are 2% higher on average um, than that rate as well. So that really limits the amount of borrowing, amount of debt that those owner-occupiers can take on. And that will limit you know, how many people actually can can benefit from this dropping or this slight loosening of the LVRs. Similarly for an investor, you know, they are struggling at the moment to justify these expenses, justify making another purchase in the market when they know they've got all these expenses they're taking on themselves too. So no doubt it'll bring a bit of demand back, but we don't expect it to bring a whole bunch of people in, which will cause the market to take off. I think for, for the investors as well, 
you know, some of them might try and get ahead of debt to income ratios coming in next year and maybe anticipate a national led government and get in sooner rather than later. But again, it's, it's not a flood of people we're expecting here. There'll be those around the edges. And one of the things talking to mortgage advisors is maybe the idea of the LVRs loosening is actually more of an impetus than anything else. When you talk to mortgage advisors, when the LVRs loosen, they get people to come and talk to them and say, Oh, I heard the LVRs are loosened. I'd love to get a mortgage. And the advisor says, You could have last week anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the coverage of them that actually bring people out of the woodwork. So that'll definitely help, but yeah, not not significantly, we don't think. Mm. Nick Goodall from CoreLogic. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Lovely to see you. No problem. Appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Cheers. Well, we've gone from the housing market at large and um, the financial markets at large to Auckland in particular. Uh, we have India Logan Riley um, here on The Hoon today. India, um, kia ora. Welcome into The Hoon. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. So, India, you're part of a, a group in Auckland who are pushing back at Wayne Brown's proposals to cut spending on social services uh, by the council and by local uh, boards, and also his plans to sell all of the Auckland Council's stake in the Auckland airport. But this week, there's been some action. Wayne Brown has uh, put out a statement saying that um, he's going to pull back, he's going to soften some of these cuts in spending. He hasn't said exactly how much. And also, it appears that he doesn't have the numbers on the council to get the asset sales through. Can you give us a sense, um, firstly, of the you know the scale of the opposition and the submissions to the council on these cuts and the uh, uh, airport share sales? Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty incredible to see Auckland come together in opposition of this terrible budget. Um, and we saw even the highest amount of submissions that Auckland Council's ever received on a budget, you know, tens of thousands of people saying, hey, we don't know about this. We don't think this is a good idea. And it was quite mixed in terms of the pathway forward that council should be taking. I do want to note here that in community meetings that I attended and conversations I had with people the submission form itself was quite tricky to navigate and was quite mm. leading in some ways. So it didn't allow room for communities to suggest maybe other alternatives um, that we had been discussing, but the submission form itself didn't necessarily have room and space for that in terms of what was calculated. But we have also seen, you know, environmental organizations like 350 Aotearoa Generation Zero um, come out against the sale of the Auckland airport shares, as well as unions as well. Um, so we've got these people who hold particular expertise um, on subjects that are really important um, to Tamaki Makoto, like the conditions for workers and the impacts of climate change and, and how we reduce those who have said actually the sale of these shares is no good as well. And so it is heartening to see that conversation shift and to see it shift for councillors, but we still need to get them to a no sale of the shares because they're on the table still at the moment for them is um, a partial sale, which also doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, Wayne Brown's reasoning for all of this is he says there's a fiscal hole of $325 million created by the after effects of COVID and the storms and that the only way, the only alternative is to cut spending and to uh, sell shares rather than use Auckland Council's balance sheet and the ability to borrow to deal with a shock. Uh, Most households, when they have a shock, you know, someone loses a job or there's a sickness um, and they have lots of assets and the ability to borrow money, will go to the bank and say, hey, something unusual just happened to me. I'll be 
fine uh, in a few months' time, but um, can you lend me some money? Uh, I'm good for it. I've got, uh, in an Auckland Council's case, you know, tens of billions of dollars worth of assets and an asset-to-debt ratio, which, you know, people who own homes are quite happy to have debt worth 300, 400 uh, times their own income. Um, but <laughs> Auckland has debt that is um, much lower than that, uh, a tenth or a quarter of that. And uh, this is all about, I think it can be argued, this is um, an ideological approach. We've got Morris Williamson, one of the players in Ruth Richardson's time in government, out there recommending cuts. I wonder, India, what you ask. Could could you explain for those people uh, perhaps outside of Auckland who maybe haven't been following the debate, what are these cuts that he's proposing and uh, where does it look like um, he's going to pull back? Yeah, so the burden will ultimately fall on um, community services, the things that we are most likely to access, particularly communities who, who need to access those things, who can't afford a pool in their backyard and a private nanny and, and those kinds of things. Um, so we'll see pools having to um, shorten their hours. It will see libraries having to shorten their hours, possibly even close down. Um, it will see tens of community gardens lose their funding. It will see all the local boards who do the things locally that at, and respond to community needs on the ground. We'll see them lose their budget by half, which is a drastic, drastic proposal um, that doesn't make sense. Um, and then, of course, things like Auckland Zoo will lose their funding. Our festivals like Pacifica and Polyfest, these flagship events that bring communities together from across Aotearoa and the Pacific, not only our little city, um, they're also looking to lose their funding as well, which makes no sense, as well as things like the Citizens Advice Bureau, although that has been walked back on. Um, so that's been relieving to see, but it is really, a, it means taking the heart and soul out of the community. And I think the really important piece here, and this does link to conversations that are happening around the general election and tax is the desire to shift, you know, us pooling our collective money and helping each other that way to reduce that and shift the burden of cost onto the individual. And of course, when an individual goes through hardship, goes through poverty, has something happen where someone loses their job, if they don't have public services to lend on where we've pulled our resources, if instead they have to foot the bill as an individual, the hardship will be much higher and the community will be much less likely to step in and support. And I think it's really important that we say, this isn't going to save us money in the long term. It's going to save some individuals some money potentially, but ultimately it will make us poorer and it will make us um, suffer more than we need to. Yeah, from my point of view, it's 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 more of the sort of penny-wise, pound-foolish decision-making, um, which we saw right throughout the late 80s and through the 90s, in which we cut back on investment, we cut back on social services, we cut back on the scale and breadth of the social safety net. And now we're shocked, shocked that we have a crime wave and that 400,000 New Zealanders don't have enough money to afford food or rent and that the government is having to subsidise them to the tune of at least $4 billion a year. So um, this is my background in thinking about things in a financial sense in that when you look at spending now versus not spending now, and you realize that it's creating a liability in the future, 
then you're actually, you know, if you were a business, it will be like not spending money on repairs and maintenance or not investing in replacing the roof. And you just know that in a few years' time, the rain's going to come through and wreck your assets. And that's a that's sort of a crude way of saying Auckland is again playing this game of essentially saving money now and ignoring the costs in the future. So um, uh, really interesting to see the pushback and also, you know, the political pain that um, Wayne Brown is is, uh, is trying to cope with. Uh, and we shall see. We shall be watching the council votes mm. um, in the weeks to come. India, Logan Riley, thank you so much for coming on the Tahuna Mihi Nui. Kia ora. Now, it is time to to go all uh, housing geek on you. We we are going to talk to Malcolm McCracken, who is a substacker. I always love talking to substackers because that's who we are. Um, uh, Malcolm is a uh, urban planner at MR Cagney in Auckland. Uh, Malcolm, welcome onto the Hoon. Kia ora, Bernard. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Good to be here. So um, I've linked to your uh, Substack in the invite, and I'll do the same in the show notes that go out with this podcast um, tomorrow morning, uh, because you um, rightly identified an interesting shift in the political landscape underneath our urban development political economy, if you like, uh, which was some comments by Christopher Luxon on Tuesday to a group of uh, people from Birkenhead at the Birkenhead Bowling Club, in which he basically said the MDRS was a mistake. Now, for those people who don't know their um, uh, urban development acronyms, and <laughs> I suppose there's a few out there, medium density residential standards is the the changes that were that went through Parliament at the end of 2021, which effectively allows someone to build three three story homes on a regular suburban section without a resource consent, which triggered an enormous blowback from people in some leafier suburbs saying, I don't want anyone stealing my daylight. And it's filtered back to National, who surprisingly perhaps signed up to this in a bipartisan deal, which was a quite a hopeful um, development, I think. Malcolm, what did you make of the comments from Christopher Lux and what do you think it says about uh, what's going on there? Yeah, so uh, Luxon's primary comment was, I think we've got the MDRS wrong, the the medium density standards wrong, which I thought was a, a really interesting statement just from you know a simple policy analysis perspective because it's a policy that only came into effect in August 22 uh, for most councils. And due to the time taken to consent and build, it's not something we would have had you know a lot of evidence for in terms of the effects. So... I I definitely interpreted the comment as as a bit of a, a wider comment about medium density in in our urban areas where we've already enabled it. There is absolutely scope to improve the the medium density standards, and um, many many organisations submitted as such. But uh, putting this through a parliamentary process meant we kind of played to the middle, often trying to get both both parties on board rather than uh, necessarily a more technically driven piece of policy. So yeah, I think I think it's a shift um, and Luxon's view is that uh, medium density isn't appropriate perhaps and I'm, I'm really curious to see what they think a change can be that doesn't seriously impact housing supply and, and in term affordability over the medium term. 
Yeah, because the medium density uh, residential standards are in many ways a follow-on from the um, apparent success of the Auckland Unitary Plan, which wasn't perfect, but it did increase the ability to increase density in parts of Auckland. Some parts were carved out uh, and some of the leafier areas were carved out in particular, but it's clear that the number of townhouses, apartments, particularly in the donut uh, outside of uh, the leafier suburbs of Ponsonby, Parnell, Mount Eden and Rimuera, there has been a lot of house building. And actually, um, there's an argument that um, this has led to a significant reduction in the um, expensiveness of housing and rent relative to incomes and relative to other parts of the country. Essentially, Economics 101, uh, you increase supply with a certain amount of demand and you might drive prices down. How big an impact was NDRS going to have on housing supply? And if, for example, as Christopher Luxon suggested on Tuesday, you revert to only having more dense housing along transport routes and around transport hubs, how much are we going to miss out on in terms of a supply shock? Uh, it's it's difficult to quantify, and I guess that comes down to the MDRS has a couple of different components. So one is the, quote, uh, three stories, three houses rule. And this is of relatively limited impact, I would argue. Um, it enables a lot of what I would describe as urban infill. So you're using leftover space at the front or rear of existing properties, uh, largely not touching the existing building. When you move into urban redevelopment where this, the existing buildings are cleared and you kind of do a more comprehensive development, the MDRS still has an impact, but there's a, there's a few more technical issues. And I think that's what this legislation was really going to unlock was basically three-story, more comprehensive development across most of the urban area. And that's where it's going to have an impact, um, particularly because the MDRS seemed like a, a real opportunity to unlock more of the central area for density in Auckland and uh, not dissimilar um, in, in other major areas where special character and, and other provisions have been used to keep the most desirable and logical places for density from any any real change. So I, I think it's it's probably likely to be of large impact, but we also have to wait to see what standard changes look like if if Luxon's comments around opt-out uh, options and, and greenfield capacity are what they're proposing, that's going to have a really significant impact. Yeah, and there's already been quite a bit of pushback from a bunch of councils. The Christchurch Council just, just flat out wouldn't pass it <laughs> before the deadline and um, seemed to have gotten away with it um, to an extent. Auckland was all passive-aggressive on it and passed it by the deadline, but carved out a whole bunch of places, including all around the proposed CBD to Mangere Airport rail line, saying, oh, we don't know exactly where things are going to be, so we're not going to develop on those areas, which is exactly where you need development. And then, of course, there's been some pushback as well in Hamilton. And I wonder uh, about the relative merits of brownfields, which is what? this medium density stuff is mostly about versus greenfields, you know, the big developments of brand new suburbs on the edge of town at the end of motorways, in which Christopher Luxon came out and said, yeah, he preferred greenfields development, not brownfields development. 
from a you know, infrastructure cost and climate change point of view, you know, what is preferable if you're just simply wanting to do the most affordable thing? Is it brownfields or is it greenfields? In general, yes, it's it's brownfield. Uh, in short, using existing infrastructure, our existing roading network, our existing cycle network where it does exist, uh, and public transport services and making them more efficient, essentially, by having more density around those key public transport corridors in central areas, it does make sense. Now, there is infrastructure requirements for brownfield, but generally it's more incremental and that provides its challenges for council and that's why they tend to push back because it's not clear-cut as it is in Greenfield where there is a large public contribution and we're seeing this in Drury where despite almost quadrupling the development contribution cost per unit to nearly $90,000 on average for (laughs) for each house in Drury, there is still going to be a large public subsidy of probably about the same amount. The The cost is really high, and that's before we get into the sort of more major um, infrastructure investments in Drury, electrification through to Pukekohe, uh, the new stations at Drury and Parata, and uh, the motorway extension as well. So it is really high cost, but in some ways it's cleaner because the council works with developers in relatively large scales and they can place most of the local infrastructure within the site as a cost on the developer, which obviously gets passed on to anyone purchasing within the development. Whereas Brownfield, you've got all the existing infrastructure, which can be relatively good quality. It might need replaced in a way how our existing rates and you know everyone's, everyone's paying in should be used to renew infrastructure and then the added pressure from the new development and the fact that we have developments which aren't coordinated, it creates a complex environment, to say the least. We see this in um, kind of order development areas as well, but the the nature of having a large public entity redeveloping typically the majority of the sites, not all, but the majority means they can guarantee the number of units that are being developed, even if more than half end up being sold on the market. And they can kind of upgrade the infrastructure, the streets in a more wholesale fashion and and ensure the alignment. What we see in areas which are market-driven, like Teata 2 Peninsula, is you've got dozens of developers doing individual sites. They're making contributions, but there's less of a coordinated manner and that, that creates tension and that's a massive challenge for councils. So naturally th- this is this is kind of a tension between the growth and infrastructure funding and councils are in a really tough tough spot about that yeah um uh, christopher luxon says we're going to hear in a few weeks time from chris bishop who's the housing spokesman for national some sort of policy will come out what are the things that you'll be looking for as the key determinants of whether you know Maybe, um, you know, removing MDRS from some parts and allowing or encouraging even more intensification and more, you know, uh, cycling and walking and that sort of thing on those main transport routes could actually, you know, if it's done correctly, generate more housing supply and be more useful, effectively 
generated densification under the cover of saying you're not doing <laughs> densification. And, you know, if if they come up with a funding formula, which means the councils are much keener to, to do densification, it might be better or not. What, what are the things that you'll be looking for? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't write that off completely. And I think uh, the National Policy Statement on Urban Development which is going to drive kind of those key transport corridors as as well as density around key centres is really strong. And there is the ability to go further. It kind of sets some minimums, which should very much be treated as minimums in our in our Wellington and Auckland in particular. You know, six stories around uh, the Mangafo station, which is um, part of the City Rail Link rebuild and will have incredibly frequent trains. Uh, as well as really good bus network connections. You know, those areas doing only up to six stories isn't a great yield for the land, the land prices around there and the demand. There is an ability there for central government to push, but I'd I'd flag it because we're already uh, a long way through the process for a plan change. And we're on what is described as a fast-tracked plan change. (laughs) And it's still... (laughs) Can you imagine what the Chinese government would look at this and go, fast track? <laughs> so I, I'd be wary of uh, how they could do that without delaying the implementation of the NPSUD further, which obviously would have a, have a significant impact. Maybe that's what they want. If you want to save money and not invest in infrastructure because it's expensive and you want to get your government deficit down and stop rates increases by councils, um, then maybe that's what you actually want. Although you're also at the same point pulling on the migration levers to bring in um, population growth of two, three percent. So not quite yeah. sure how that how that circle squares. Well, it doesn't, right? And uh, population growth is good for our cities, it's good for our economy, it's good for our people, whether it's connecting families, uh, ensuring Kiwis have access to the lifestyle and you know, amenities they want. We're we're a relatively small country still, but the larger the population, the more more we can serve, and and you know, growing our centres, major centres like particularly the Upper North Island, where we could see well over a million people in growth in a in a higher projection over the next twenty five years or so. We, we can only accommodate that through density. We can't pave over the entire Waikato and and up to Whangarei, and um, we probably still struggle to meet meet the demand. Uh, yeah, it's not so, so much green fields as grey fields. <laughs> uh, and yeah. uh, just finally, Malcolm, you know, this statement came out at a heated meeting of um, a sea of, talk about grey, a sea of grey hair. Uh, not that I'm, you know, look at my grey hair. Um, <laughs> you know, th- there's people in the suburbs. This is Birkenhead, so it's an inner city, leafier suburb. And, you know, people don't like change. People don't like, you know, this paradise they've just bought changing around them. What would you say to those those people at that Birkenhead Bowling Club uh, when they say, you know, um, I don't want all of that development near me? What do you say to them? So I, I'd start by acknowledging that, yes, change is, is difficult, right? Um, and, you know, people do buy into neighborhoods with the ideals that, oh, my kid can walk to that school. I really like that school. And various local amenities might drive it, you know, access to parks, green, green space, maybe it's access to a beach. Um, there are loads of reasons why people will be very cautious around change. But I think the way 
we need to frame it. And this comes alongside vastly improving the way we build. And that comes through resource management design standards. It comes through improving the build, building code, um, a bunch of things. But fundamentally, urban intensification should be an opportunity to fix many of the issues that our cities actually face. Uh, one is our funding issue. Um, so higher density developments uh, will deliver much greater rates for councils and, and not at a higher cost per unit, but because the value of the property will be driven by higher density. And yeah, so uh, there's a really great graphic of uh, this done with property values. And, you know, you can see the city center stands out because it's high density, you know, thousands of businesses and residents operating and they contribute more rates because the the area is worth more. And if we focus on uh, largely urban intensification, which we're already down this track, right? So 80% of consents in February, if I'm remembering my months correctly, in Auckland were uh, multi-unit, you know, kind of apartments, townhouses, or retirement villages. So there has been a massive shift towards that. That chart from the um, the report on the MDRS put together by Curd and Lees at Sense Partners is a cracker. And actually, it's if I was talking to those people with the grey hair, I would simply put that chart up on the screen and say, you live in a leafy suburb close to the centre. You do know what happens when you allow people to put more homes on that land. The value of the land goes up faster than it otherwise would. Yeah. And that's the irony here is that people are campaigning against a policy that would make them much richer if they are landowners. Yeah. Yep, it would. Um, though this is partly driven by scarcity of well-zoned land as well. That's something we've had historically. Um, for example, the unitary plan largely only zoned apartments along ridgelines in rel- relatively central suburbs of Auckland, uh, typically if there were previously light industry, then, you know, building an apartment there could be of relatively low impact. But it means there's very limited sites and then that pushes up the price for a site because, you know, the developers are trying to seek out somewhere to build an apartment block and the landowners know that there's not that many actually available so they can ask a little bit more. Whereas when we have wider spread zoning that enables the density, that will limit how far the, the the land price goes based on what is enabled. So Yes, that that yeah. would be the perfect solution. A not just a supply shock, but an enormous supply shock which allows land prices and uh, house yep. prices to drop all over the place. And with that does come the complication again with the uh, infrastructure funding for councils, right? Uh, if it's if it's a little bit more scattered than they would ideally plan for that does make infrastructure funding a little bit more complex. It makes running services more complex. But if we're reliant on a market-driven solution to our housing shortage and, and crisis, and I say crisis in a much wider sense than we don't have enough homes. We don't have enough good homes either. We don't have enough homes that meets the you know, wide variety of needs. You know, Household sizes have got a bit smaller. You know, Most people actually would be okay in a two-bedroom unit maybe three, but not everyone needs a five, which is what, you know, we tended to build for quite a while. Um, um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a fascinating debate. We'll no doubt um, hear more detail. This one's not going away anytime soon. Malcolm McCracken, who is a Substack, and we'll link to his Substack in the show notes. Malcolm, thank you very much for being on The Hoon. Kia ora. Thank you, Bernard. 
Well, we should wrap it up there. Um, it's been a busy old week. Unfortunately, Peter couldn't make it this week, and neither could the foxes. But um, we had a good lap around the traps, and uh, I hope you all enjoyed that. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. That has been the hoon for the week to Friday the 26th of May. 